You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 8th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... We're building an economy where no one's left behind. Jobs are coming back. Pride is coming back. Our US editor will give us his analysis of President Joe Biden's State of the Union speech. We'll ask if he's finally getting his message across to Americans. Also, what's Russia planning for its renewed offensive in Ukraine? We'll examine reports that Moscow is pouring military reinforcements into the east of the country. Plus, what can a city do to make its residents happy? We've been a whole community around the world, around happiness, well-being as strategic assets and framework for human flourishing. We'll go through the newspapers and we will praise nature's handyman, the beaver. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look what else is happening in today's news. The death toll from the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has now jumped to more than 8,300 people. The US Navy has released photos of a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon that was shot out of the sky on Saturday. And a pilot from New Zealand has been taken hostage by separatist fighters in Indonesia. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, we've just heard the State of the Union address by President Biden in the last couple of hours. Chris Lord is Monocle's US editor. He's been uh, following what the events that has been happening at the Capitol. Uh, welcome back, Chris. Hi, good to talk to you. So what did he say? He was on he was on good form, Joe Biden. I mean, he began uh, a little bit slow, a little bit trying to trying to find his feet. And then when he sort of hit his stride, it was actually a rather lively, rousing state of the union. I think he re- recognized a couple of things. I think first is the first one since the midterm elections in November, where of course the Democrats held on to the Senate, but they did lose the House, if only by a very, very tiny majority to the Republicans. However, I think what you see, what you've seen overnight in this State of the Union address was Biden really start to recognize the key weakness in his administration, which is this. He has been a terrible messenger of his own administration. He has been unable to communicate to the American people the successes, which there have been successes of this administration so far the numerous bills that have got through the House, the major spending programs that are about inflation, uh, tackling inflation, building new infrastructure, bringing more manufacturing back to the US. And that's what he tried to tackle head on in this address. It was a very, it was a very, um, a pitch to blue collar voters here. There was a lot of talk about new factories in Ohio making superconductors. There was talking about infrastructure is going to be all built using American made goods. It was a real... It was a very Biden speech, frankly, because I think that he's really starting to reveal himself more and more as that president that a lot of people, when he came to to the presidency, said he always was, which is, you know, in in a broader sense, an America first president. He's very keen to speak to that side of the electorate that wants to know about American jobs, American prosperity and American manufacturing. So it was a lively speech. He got heckled by the Republicans, by Marjorie Taylor Greene, called a liar uh, because he said the Republicans were going to try and pare back 
Medicare, the health spare, healthcare spending that comes uh, here in America. But I, I would say it was a very, very interesting speech. And I would just, I would just end on the point by saying that for 2024, next year's election, he hasn't yet thrown his hat into the ring uh, to, to say he's going to run for the presidency. But this was a very, very strong pitch to those Americans who he needs to bring on side. If you like the, the Pennsylvania Americans, those swing voters who decided to vote blue in the in the midterms, and he is hoping they're going to be able to do it again when it comes to the election next year. I mean, in that perspective, the State of the Union address suddenly becomes a direct speech to a captive audience and that opportunity that the White House has been so frustrated about, this lack of the ability to communicate the fact that, what, they've seen the fastest job in uh, job growth in US history, for example. Do we, th- yeah. do we think that, the, that he's actually got his message across? You're right. Fastest job growth. You know, these spending bills that I've just talked about, they are major, major political bills. And, you know, they've been compared in scale to something like FDR's New Deal in terms of the amount of infrastructure that's going to be built and using American uh, goods and labor for it. But whether this lands is, is, is more complicated. I think, you know, his approval ratings are still pretty low. Around 42% think he's doing a good job here in America. Um, I think that, you know, it, 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 the trouble that he's going to have now is that the Republicans have got a great broadside against him, which is that right now we, we here in America, there is, there is wild inflation. And it, it, yes, it may be starting to creep down a little bit, but the interest rates continue to rise to keep that under control. Americans are feeling that pain. And if they hear, which which is going to start coming as we get towards 2024, Republicans pointing the finger at Joe Biden saying, look at how much spending this government is doing. He's got to make the case to say, hey, this is materially going to improve your lives, which so far since those bills got through the House, I don't think he's been able to do. I don't think most Americans could really tell you what the infrastructure bill is doing for them, however much money is contained in it and how how big and grand its plans are. I just think that the idea of this landing is going to be very difficult, but it was a strong speech. And it was was very clear who he was speaking to. And I think on that point, Emma, what I thought was very interesting as well is that, you know, last year, a lot of what Joe Biden had to say to the nation on a big, you know, captive audience level was very existential stuff. It was about democracy on the ballot paper. It was about American democracy and freedom being subverted. It was about actors waiting in the wings of like Donald Trump and his followers and so on who were looking to cause political violence. There was bits of that, warnings about that in here, but it came much more back to those those real fundamentals, the kitchen table sort of stuff, economy, jobs, growth and manufacturing. And that, I think, is a change of tack. Chris Lord, Monocle's US editor, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Yesterday, Ukraine says it saw the deadliest 24 hours of the war so far for Russian troops. Moscow has brought tens of thousands of fresh troops to the battlefield as part of what's thought to be a renewed offensive planned for the next couple of weeks. Well, to find out more, let's hear from Jenny Mathers, a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Welcome back, Jenny. Good morning to you. Good morning. So just explain to us what made Tuesday so deadly. Well, I think Russia over the past several weeks has been um, really very determinedly devoting more and more troops to this effort to make some gains in uh, the Donetsk area. 
of eastern Ukraine. And, you know, for, for weeks and weeks, they've been um, battling it out over uh, towns like Bakhmut, uh, where there have been sort of incremental gains this way and that way, but a lot of high cost in terms of the loss of life. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is just more more of the same in many respects. But, you know, Russia is de- demonstrating its determination uh, to try and hold on to as much of the gains uh, in Donetsk as possible and to sort of probe for weak areas among the Ukrainians. So, you know, the impact has been very, very deadly because, of course, Russia has lots of, of people, lots of troops to send into this conflict. Uh, and Ukraine is, is outnumbered uh, by a very large extent. And the governor of uh, Luhansk yesterday claimed that Russia is I think the words were pouring military reinforcements into his area. And this is all reportedly ahead of a fresh offensive by Moscow, um, expected in the next couple of weeks, many are saying. Do you have any update as to as to where the Russians are with this? Sure. So this is really what we're seeing is the the throughput of the uh, mobilisation that Putin announced back in September. Um, and, you know, all autumn and winter, uh, the the people have been um, sort of mobilized. Uh, lots of, of men have been brought into the military uh, machine and have been you know trained and, and organized into units and so on. And so now we're we're really starting to see those uh, those men coming into the, the battle zone. And I think the the big question is going to be uh, the quality and the motivation of those soldiers, as well as their ability to you know. Um, you know, fight for a cause, which, frankly, you know, it's not, it's hard for Putin to make the case that that this war is about um, the existence of Russia and and about threats to Russia. So, you know, the the motivation is a very important issue here, as well as leadership, uh, because, of course, you know, Russia has lost many commanders uh, and many of its most experienced forces. So this is going to be increasingly uh, setting up to be a, a battle between numbers and sheer force, versus uh, more more nimble um, troops uh, on the Ukraine side, better trained, um, potentially better equipped, uh, and probably better led as well. So do we know what the scope of Russia's ambition is in, for this renewed offensive? And we, I think it was yesterday that the UK's defence intelligence briefing said that Russia was aiming almost certainly to capture parts of Donetsk that weren't already under occupation. That is clearly ambitious, but it, it isn't on the same scale as Putin's decision to wholesale invade Ukraine last year. No, indeed. And it's very revealing how much Russia's ambitions have had to be scaled back, you know, compared to a year ago when uh, the Kremlin thought that they could take over the whole of Ukraine in a matter of weeks. And clearly that that hasn't happened. So the idea that they're trying to fight back to uh, gain, regain control of some areas of the Donbass, which they have lost, and try and expand that control so that they can at least say, well, we have all of Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, that's a, a sort of a face-saving position for Putin, but it, it is quite a minimalist position in, in many respects. Looking at what Kiev can do to combat this, uh, I think it was yesterday that um, Germany, Denmark and the Netherlands announced that 178 Leopard 1 tanks were going to be on the way. We have the Leopard 2 tanks on the way. How far along that process are we? Because there's clearly a need for Ukraine to be ready. Absolutely. And I think here we have very divergent estimates in terms of how long it will take to not only deliver the tanks, but also to train Ukrainian troops sufficiently in using them 
as well as in maintaining and repairing them, getting those supply lines going for you know spare parts and so on, um, and also integrating them into their operational units in such a way that it, it makes sense and they can work with them and they can can use them effectively in combat. So you know the Ukrainians are saying we can do this in a matter of weeks. Um, Americans and, and other Western uh, military specialists are saying, oh, it's going to take months, maybe three months, maybe five months. This is one of the unknowns about this war is how quickly can these new uh, weapons uh, and techniques be integrated. And of course, we've seen the Ukrainians uh, being incredibly motivated, uh, working very hard and becoming proficient in the use of the Western weapons that they've been supplied with previously very, very quickly, much more quickly than the Western estimates initially suggested. So, you know, possibly we're going to see a, a big difference in the coming uh, weeks, but certainly in the coming months. Now, whether this is going to be soon enough uh, for any sort of a major offensive that Russia launches is unknown. You know, Russia may choose to uh, use the February 24th date as a sort of symbolic one year on to, to launch a major offensive. They may hold back into March or even April uh, when their troops are perhaps more ready uh, and, and better prepared for such a thing. So this is one of the great unknowns. It's it's a race on both sides, basically. Um, there's a suggestion, there are reports that uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky could visit Brussels on Thursday to, to, to meet EU leaders. What do you think may be achieved by that meeting? I think we can clearly imagine that, that President Zelensky could repeat his request for more help. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is the the constant refrain, uh, understandably, in his messages to to Western countries. It's on the one hand, you know, enormous gratitude for the help that's already been offered and is being offered, but also pointing out the gap between uh, what the Ukrainians have and are likely to get in the near term and what they might need. Uh, in order to not only hold the line against Russian uh, offensives, but also to push the Russians back um, so that the Ukrainians can actually retake the territory that's been occupied and held by Russia in some cases since 2014. Um, So I would expect him to reiterate both of those messages very strongly um, and and make the case uh, that, you know, Ukraine needs more and it needs it sooner. Um, And, you know, this is sort of a a crucial moment when, when Russia is clearly preparing for a major offensive. Jenny Mathers, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. Now let's get the latest on rescue efforts following the two devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Uh, the latest death toll, although it is changing constantly, has now passed 7,800. Um, I'm joined by Ruth Michelson, currently near the epicentre of the earthquakes. A very good morning to you, Ruth. Good morning. Uh, just tell us where where you are and what can you see? Well, at the moment, um, I'm in the town of Kayseri. We're going to be driving towards um, the town of Karamanrash, which is very close to the epicentre and also Parchalik to represent the, the, the epicentre of um, one of the epicentres of the, the quake. Um, from reporting the past couple of days, I mean, what we're seeing is, first of all, that these are incredibly difficult rescue conditions. There's snow on the ground. It is minus temperatures um, and people that have been able to escape have, are sleeping in their cars um, or lighting fires in the open to try and keep warm. Um, but there are still rescue efforts going on and that's what we're expecting to see in, in Kalman Marash. Um, in buildings entirely collapsed and places across southern Turkey where there are still bodies being pulled out of the rubble but also hope that there will still be people found alive. Um, How much hope is there? Because we're nearly, what, 48 hours on since it happened. 
and the conditions are catastrophic and the, the the fact is that there is huge huge logistical issues as well trying to get help in uh, some are saying there's not enough trucks in one region the new york times is reporting that you know one of the the, the biggest headaches here is the logistical problems getting help absolutely i mean being able to get between different areas in the south is incredibly difficult um which is also complicating vital aid needed into northern Syria. Um, the In places, the roads are incredibly difficult, um, you know, very, very difficult driving conditions. So being able for rescue workers to get to places and reach people has been hard. Um, certainly been interviewing and speaking to people who are in more remote places outside of major cities who said that it took a long time for emergency workers to reach them and we're probably seeing this more, most acutely in Hatay province which is uh, Turkey's southernmost province um, bordering um, Idlib and that of course is making uh, the rescue efforts in Idlib even more desperate than they already were. And there is this issue isn't there that in addition to it being a physically extremely unstable part of the world um, I think I heard the area described as a political quagmire to try to negotiate in terms of who's in charge of what and, and, and who can help with what. Well I mean I think that what we've seen is that the Turkish authorities have tried to make very clear from the beginning that they are in control of this rescue effort. Um, and, you know, uh, the president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is expected in uh, to visit the south, probably Karaman Marash, today. Um, and he declared a state of emergency in the 10 provinces affected by the quote uh, yesterday. And what that means is essentially the suspension of rule of law in these places. He says that this is in order to speed up uh, the rescue effort and make things go smoothly. Um, and you know, the Turkish government called for international aid very quickly after this happened and so are now in charge of coordinating uh, an enormous rescue effort. Um, one thing that the uh, official state news agency Andalus report, Ana, is reporting in Turkey is that, is that the president, um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is on his way to the earthquake zone. Um, what are your thoughts on that, given the fact it is, what, now two days since since the quake? Um, what leadership is he displaying here? Well, he's certainly been keen to show that he is in charge. Um, we saw immediately after this happened that he was, you know, there's been coordination um, from areas outside the affected zones. I mean, I think that he's probably entering Kalman Marsh um, a day when it's beginning to look like there, hopefully there will be no more aftershocks um, and it's not necessarily quite as dangerous to enter as it was a couple of days ago. Um, so, I mean, certainly in terms of what I saw yesterday in towns on the way to Karaman Marash, there were people complaining that the aid was only just reaching them there and saying, you know, we don't really see, a, the state hasn't really helped us yet. And there was a kind of despondency for that. It wasn't anger. Um, but, you know, we saw some ambulances, some aid just beginning to reach them. And these were people saying, we don't have any access to food or water or shelter. And so we're really leaning on the state for help. So this visit 
by Erdogan today is, is an opportunity for him to say the state is here, the state is protecting you, as he said in his speech yesterday, that this will be a moment for him to show a kind of action on that that I think would be, would be welcome. And we are looking now at a situation where I think it's being reported that up to 23 million people could be affected by what's happened in, in Turkey and Syria in the last couple of days. From your point of view, having lived in Turkey for such a long time and having seen the, the, the fortunes of the country's economy and society ebb and flow, um, what does such a huge shock do to a country like Turkey? Well, I mean, we saw, for example, in the aftermath of the 1999 earthquake, which devastated parts of Istanbul, that the after effects of these things can be transformative in the sense that um, there are enormous questions about infrastructure and and the role of the state in terms of being able to help people when they are most in need after a disaster of this scale. Um, And I think that this earthquake, as well as coming at the worst possible time in terms of the freezing conditions and the difficulties of the rescue effort, is also coming in an election year. Um, and that, how, you know, the way that people feel about the response will likely, it, it feels impossible at this moment that that wouldn't affect people's decision making in an election that is expected in mid-May. Um, what that actually will mean, I think it's not possible yet to draw a straight line from it, but it, it's very hard to imagine that a country at this moment, which does feel united in a, a mass grief, the likes of which haven't been seen for two decades, you know, it, that is that is obviously going to play a role in May. Ruth Michelson, thank you so much as ever for joining us on the line from Turkey. Still to come on today's Globalist, how are the authorities in the US stopping Chinese buyers from acquiring all their land? We don't want to have holdings uh, by hostile nations. And so if you look at the Chinese Communist Party, they've been very active throughout the Western Hemisphere in gobbling up land and investing in different things. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. in Berlin, 7.22 here in London. Now, relations between the United States and China took another turn for the worse this weekend, with a shooting down of what Washington believes was a giant balloon sent by China to spy on military targets. But China has developed a much more tangible influence on Earth, quite literally, because for some time Chinese buyers have been building up their holdings in America's agricultural land. And in Texas, the authorities are fighting back. Well, Scott Lucas is adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin and a very regular voice here on Monocle 24. Very good morning to you, Scott. Morning to you, Emma. So how much land are we talking about? Well, first of all, Emma, there's a really important correction here about Chinese individuals and companies gobbling up agricultural land. Um, It's a myth being spread by those who want to restrict it. In fact, uh, Chinese entities have about 300,000, 350,000 acres of agricultural land in the United States. Compare that to Canadian individuals and uh, companies that have almost 13 million, uh, more than 40 times the amount. So, uh, more, you know, so that's 
you know, the scale that we're talking about here is that China is not, you know, as it were, on this massive sweep across the U.S. to seize land. However, there are 11 states who are now considering measures that would specifically restrict Chinese companies and or individuals uh, from acquiring land, including a measure in Texas that would ban any Chinese person, not the Chinese Communist Party, not the government, any Chinese person uh, from land ownership. Um, I mean, you mentioned Canada, but arguably the United States relationship with its neighbor is slightly different to the one it has with with China. So it is rather understandable, wouldn't you see that that if you are uh, moving in a sort of in, you know, aware of the fact that relations between the US and China are so bad, that it would be a natural step to make sure that the the, the real tangible influence that, you, that a country such as China could have in the United States should be limited. Well, I, th- I think we need to make a division here on two levels. Emma, first of all, in terms of the the nature of the measures, I think uh, if you're talking about restricting Chinese ownership as opposed to foreign ownership, but just Chinese ownership, you can make the case that there's a national security issue. For example, when the Chinese buy up land, which is close to American military bases, as has happened in the northern U.S. uh, in recent years, I think there is a case that if the Chinese uh, state was looking to uh, really get a hold on the American economy by buying up much of the agricultural land, thus controlling food supply, then you've got a case. But when you look at the Texas measure and when you look at some other measures in other states, it's not directed against the Chinese government on those issues. It's just a sweeping ban on the holding of property by anyone, which brings me to the second distinction. Um, It might be natural to say that in certain cases, that you would want to look at land ownership. Um, And indeed, some states, Oklahoma, for example, uh, requires you to be a U.S. citizen to buy land in the state. But in this case, it's politics, that you have people jumping on a bandwagon because there are tensions between the U.S. and China. They've been growing for a number of years. And there are individuals like Governor Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas, who think, man, I, I can make a mass appeal here to people with a very quick jab at China to advance my own ambitions. And if you look at uh, Texas, it also is um, taking aim at ownership by the likes of Russians, Iranians, North Koreans, in addition to China. I mean, it's it's a sort of an understandable, very easy political hit, isn't it? Well, it's an understandable political hit, but it's actually a, a, some would say hypocritical, but certainly a double-edged one. Because at the same time, that Texas legislators and Governor Abbott are taking this swipe at China and linking them with other supposed enemies, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Texas celebrates the fact that it has a strong economic relationship with China and has recruited and has hailed the success in getting billions of dollars in direct investment by Chinese companies. So on the one hand, yeah, you, you punch Beijing in the nose, at least in rhetoric and possibly over land. And then on the other, you say, boy, it's sure great that we get some uh, Chinese investment to prop our economy up. It's a difficult balance to strike, though, and it is the perpetual one. That On the one hand, you have politics and uh, you know the huge division and the, and the absolute parting between the United States and China and the fact that you know a balloon could be sent over the United States and, and, and Blinken stops his his, uh, his his visit to China. But at the same time, it also highlights, as you have just mentioned there, the need for investment, and China has the money. I'm, I'm going to push back on the idea that it's difficult to strike a balance, Emma. Um, 
it is possible to take measures such as downing a Chinese balloon that is used for espionage. It is possible to make a strong signal to China that this is not acceptable. For example, canceling the visit of Secretary of State Blinken. It is possible, as Joe Biden said last night, that we will engage in competition rather than confrontation with China. And on the other hand, respect the right of individuals who happen to be Chinese, whether they live in China or in other countries, to own land. There is a backdrop here. The United States has not had the balance with China in the past, or at least Chinese individuals. There is a long history of discrimination, especially in Western states, against Chinese immigrants. And for someone to exploit the issues, to exploit security issues, to exploit economic issues, to repeat that type of discrimination? No, it's easy to strike a balance and say, no, that's not acceptable. When you talk about discrimination, what does it do to America's cultural makeup when you when you start to single out countries such as China? You know, if you are a Chinese person who has lived in the United States for a long time, you may be second or third generation. What does that do for, for how you fit into the world? Well, again, it's, it's something that we've seen uh, very much in American history that um, in the run to World War II and during World War II, for example, you had the interning of Japanese American citizens, not just Japanese, but Japanese American citizens. And you set up a cultural divide which says, well, th- well these folks are acceptable, but you know, th- these aren't. Uh, you have seen um, Islamophobia in the United States when you've had politicians and others who have marked out particular, quote, enemies being part of the axis of evil. And so again, you have the risk that although this is specifically directed at Chinese citizens, not Chinese Americans, that you stoke up that cultural division. Um, And you had uh, a Houston area politician yesterday, Greg Wu, who actually pointed out, who said, look, if this measure gets through the Texas legislature, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to buy property or, or my ancestors wouldn't be able to buy property. Why are we doing this? At the end of the day, uh, there is a need to uh, have a communal security. But at the end of the day, there needs to be a communal acceptance, which doesn't ban entire classes of individuals from being part of a community. Scott Lucas, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24 at the time 7.30 here in London. Let's have a look at some of the day's other headlines. The death toll from the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has now jumped to more than 7,800 people. But the World Health Organization says that may rise dramatically as rescuers find more bodies. More than 23 million people are expected to be affected by the disaster. The US Navy has released photos of a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon that was shot out of the sky on Saturday. Pictures show large debris of the balloon being hauled onto a boat. It'll now be examined to see whether it was indeed a spy equipment. China has repeatedly insisted it's an airship for civilian use. And a pilot from New Zealand has been taken hostage by separatist fighters in Indonesia. He was taken after his plane was set alight when it landed in the mountainous district in the country's Papua region. The separatists want Indonesia to recognise the independence of the province. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, 
have you ever thought about what a city can do to make you happy? Well, it's something that Luis Gallardo thinks about constantly. He's the founder of the World Happiness Foundation. It's an organisation that set itself a rather ambitious goal of making everyone in the world happy by 2050. Well, Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack spoke to Luis at the recent US Conference of Mayors winter meetings and he began by explaining the foundation's mission. <laughs> Since the United Nations proclaimed March 20th as International Day of Happiness 10 years ago, we've been a whole community around the world focusing on research, on policy making, advising government officials, CEOs, deans in schools around happiness well being as a strategic assets and framework for human flourishing. So we've been learning a lot. And something that we all realize now and many people are understanding is that there is a direct relationship between happiness and well-being. Because happiness is subjective well-being. So happiness is more in our mind, it's a state of mind, it's a perception. But you know how important perceptions are. So it's very important that we manage the narratives which are the ones that are building the perceptions, and then the conditions. And this is how we are here at the United States Conference of Mayors, reminding all the city mayors how important it is for the cities to create the conditions for people to flourish. And then it's going to be up to the people to choose to be happiness. But it's easier for most of us to flourish when we have the right conditions. Tell me a little more about those conditions that you are describing there within cities. What is your message to mayors here in the US? Yeah, actually my talk is all about the pursuit of happiness starts in our cities. Uh, we have coined this concept of capitalism. So it's not based on capital, it's based on happiness. And this new paradigm for human progress is based on cities. So actually the power really is at the city level. It doesn't matter if it's a 100-person city or 14 million. What you have to create are units where there is enough accountability and responsibility by citizens in order to own their own conditions. And this is what we want to do with mayors and we want to help them by giving them a whole framework with more than nine dimensions, 49 tangible KPIs that they can use in order to manage the city. Perhaps give me just one example of, of one of these frameworks, something specifically for mayors that you feel is, is key in terms of improving the quality of life and happiness in cities. Yeah, one of them is what we call my habitat. So when you talk about personal development, we all need as individuals, our surroundings helping us to flourish. So when we focus on my habitat, my habitat includes your personal family, what is the space that you have to live, and then when you extend this to the city, is your neighborhood, is how many green spaces you have. Is Today I was talking to experts on lighting, and we were talking about the relevance of having the right lighting in the city, because when there is light, there is more opportunity for people to get together. When there is no light, there is more opportunity to create unsafe environments and that attracts crime 
and, and situations that can be really unfair for, for people. So when you focus on my habitat, then what you are exploring is the whole habitat of the person, their neighborhood, and that gives the city the opportunity to say, okay, I can get to your home. Then your home is yours. And you're gonna be managing your space the way you want. But at least what I wanna make sure is that from your home to the airport, from your home to your school, you have the right environment for you to flourish. That's one example. The other aspect that has been quite striking is the anger that many citizens feel. The descriptions here of you know, anger at, at school board meetings, council meetings, that kind of thing. Mayors themselves, frankly, fearing for their own safety to some degree, the safety of local officials. Anger is also sort of the opposite of happiness, I suppose. Where do you feel all of that has come from here in the United States? This is an amazing question. So actually emotions are not happening against other emotions. So we can be angry and we can be happy at the same time. This is super interesting. The same with fear, the same with sadness. We know that anger is based on injustice. So people feel anger because they perceive injustice. There is a lot of injustice, that's the reality. The reality is that the perception of injustice is almost everywhere. So what we are feeling now is a lot of angry people. And you know what happens when you are angry and you know how to manage your anger, that you get violent. So this is the importance of, and this is what we train, of being calm contemplation. Right now we divide the world into those who think and those who act. We want to create a third category and the third category is those who neither think nor act. <laughs> it's basically people who pause and contemplate with no judgment because the more we judge, the more we believe, the more we get attached the more we make those attachments part of our identity. And the more we build our identity on attachments, the more difficult it is to become when we are angry. And that was Luis Gallardo from the World Happiness Foundation talking to Monocle's Chris Chermak. You're the globalist. <laughs> 1537, well, 1538 nearabouts in Beijing, 8.38am in Zurich, 7.38 here in London. Let's have a look at today's newspapers. I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio by Vincent McAvinney. Hello, Vinny. Hi, good morning. Oh, all well with you, I hope. Um, all well, we hope as well with Rishi Sunak as he tries to reshape whoever is left of his government to hire. <laughs> Mm, yeah, Rishi Sunak uh, sort of, you know, inherited a, a cabinet of people that he couldn't move. He couldn't sort of get rid of the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, who'd been brought in to stabilise after Liz Truss's economic nightmare. Uh, there was also allies of Boris Johnson, like James Cleverley, the Foreign Secretary, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, who he just simply couldn't get rid of. Um, and he brought back Suella Braverman, who had been someone who had been sacked just uh, days before, uh, because she sort of brought with her the sort of right ERGs of the party. So he was sort of hamstrung in how he assembled his government. Uh, and now he's 
made some changes which he was secretly going about planning uh, that point to a direction that he wants to try and take government. Uh, but he, again, is, is slightly sort of stuck as to who he can appoint and what he can do. So what he's done... He had a big department, uh, which was known as Bayes, uh, which was uh, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Forgive me for smiling. <laughs> yep. Now, that had already subsumed a separate uh, department called DEC, which was Department for Energy and Climate Change. I hope we're all keeping it, up with this. Indeed. Well, now it's all being broken up. So there will be a specific uh, department for what they're calling Energy and Net Zero, which will have the sole mission of bringing down energy costs. Uh, and Grant Chaps, who had been the tra- uh, Transport Secretary, is heading off to that. Uh, there will then be uh, a separate Science, Technology and Innovation Department, uh, which is going to be headed by Michelle Donnellan, who was the Culture Secretary. Uh, and then you'll have a Business and Trade Department being headed up by Kemi Badenoch. So uh, there are some accusations in the papers this morning that this is a bit like reshuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic uh, as it's going down. Is this going to be a vote winner anywhere? No, but it does show sort of Rishi Sunak's priorities. He is a bit of a technocrat. He is trying to get growth where he can. Uh, and it does seem that he finally sort of sees that a, a department for science and technology, if that is the pivot for the UK economy, particularly with it when it comes to green investment, when it comes to uh, becoming, as they like to call it, say, a digital powerhouse, having a sort of, you know, a second Silicon Valley here in Europe, hearted in the UK, uh, then creating a separate department for it is what he thinks it needs. But we'll see whether whether or not they actually managed to achieve anything in the time they have left. I mean, you've got to absolutely give it to them for having a go to try to address the big issues and to try to sort of perhaps steer or even shape government in a way that he perhaps will be will be you know will be needed for the next few decades. The trouble is, is that the Conservatives have been in power now since well, I'm not quite 2010. sure, 2010, since the Earth cooled, and I'm beginning to wonder. I think everybody is beginning to wonder who is left to do these jobs mm. because once you've been in power for, for nigh on 13 years. Everybody who has ever been any good has been and arguably gone. So, one, I mean, who is actually running these departments and are they actually up to it? Well, there's an interesting story, actually, that he tried to get Michael Gove uh, to head up uh, one of these departments, which he saw uh, as being a promotion. So Gove is currently the Communities and Leveling Up Secretary. Uh, he apparently wanted him uh, to come in, I think, on the technology and science one because he is seen as someone that can deliver and knows the Whitehall machinery. But Michael Gove declined that, even though Sunak said it thought it would be a promotion. He's sort of focused on what he thinks. It can be a vote winner for them, which is sort of reforms to the very unusual and in some ways feudal way that, uh, for one, the... um, British housing market works when it comes to leasehold, which is a, a very sort of unique British creation, which is an utter nonsense when you try and explain it to anyone that you like buy. Like a really long rental. It's a really long rental. Of about that's, a thousand yeah, years. Yeah, that's how we buy our flats. Well, if you're lucky now, I, I mine is only 125, mm. and that was a new build flat. So, you know, he's trying to maybe get rid of that before the next election. Potential try and sort of pull in a younger demographic, people struggling who uh, are trying to get on the housing market. But it does show, as you say, a government, you know, these aren't sort of uh, big beasts, shall we say, heading up these departments anymore. It, it is kind of people who some of them haven't been uh, even MPs for particularly long. How many long. of us are still listening to what the government is doing at the moment? I'm just, you know, one is, one is slightly wondering now. I mean, it's a fair question. You know, Rishi Sunak's whole strategy has been to be quieter, to turn down the dials of government after 
the years of the government obviously having to be more in people's faces than at any point since the war because of the pandemic, but also because of Boris Johnson's uh, propensity <clears throat> to dominate the car- the uh, the conversation and attract attention with both politics and personal. And there is this communication tone as well. At the beginning of this hour, we were talking about how Joe Biden has struggled to get his message across about the reforms and the huge infrastructure changes and the the job growth that he wants to tell the world about, but it it hasn't landed. I mean, when you look at, when you look at Rishi Sunak, or indeed when you hear Rishi Sunak, the communication is is like an automaton. It is it is like a really strange wildly lacking in emotional connection and, and, and emotional dynamism. And you're sort of looking at the US and the UK going, is, is this the communications of, of the great leaders? Yeah, it sort of does hark back to Theresa May. There is a little bit of a kind of robotic delivery. I remember when Rishi Sunak came out and gave his his speech when he had won. It was a, a sort of pre-recorded speech that he did in Conservative Party headquarters. And there was just a really strange long pause at the end before he walked off and... Um, Someone overplayed the, redubbed it, where they put the sort of window shutdown music on the end, uh, <laughs> which he sort of struggles to to, to shake off. Um, he only really has kind of, well, I mean, likely a scenario is that the election is the late spring next year. That means he hasn't got much longer to really kind of get the voters to get to know him. He's got one party conference season. He did do an interview last week, which was a bit more personal, uh, in his own flat at Downing Street, but with Piers Morgan on Talk TV, which means effectively no one watched it, um, apart from a couple of clips maybe online. So we'll see whether or not he has the time now to to really try and kind of win people over. OK, um, let's move on to, to the next story. Um, let's have a look. So, so China and the United States, the, the saga of the balloon continues. Uh, what's the Wall Street Journal reporting today? Well, this is an interesting line that apparently China refused a call from the US after the downing of the suspected uh, spy balloon. Uh, and the US did sort of notify... Uh, the Chinese, obviously, I mean, they didn't really need to notify them because CNN and everyone was covering it breathlessly live. They had people on the beaches. You know, the, there was footage instantly on social media of the thing being shot down. But it is warning, uh, and it, it is a dangerous warning, I think, that um, when you think about the Cold War and the red phones and having, you know, the back channels to make sure that there wasn't tripping over into accidental mistakes or sort of military standoffs that need, didn't need to happen... Um, and it did sort of work for all those decades, seemingly. There is talk in this piece by the Wall Street Journal about how it's actually proving tricky sometimes to to contact the Chinese military uh, and how that could, obviously, you know, this is an interaction between a a balloon and a fighter jet. It's not the most fast-paced thing going on. Uh, But if it was something else, like ships or like planes, you might need, uh, you know, better, more open lines of communication between Washington and Beijing. We were talking... um with friends last night about the the fighter jet which downed the balloon mm. and how you have a name for you know how you have a call sign for yeah. your for your for your um for your pilot that guy's going to be balloon forever he has to be he's just <laughs> well balloon. and it was apparently the first and i can't i can't remember the name of the fighter jet now i think it was an f20 or something like that yeah. whatever it is it's the, it's the sort of newest fighter jet in the us's arsenal the big one that they've spent uh you know hundreds of millions uh, billions of dollars and years developing this is its first actual piece of actual combat of it firing on something and it's a it's a balloon so you know plot for top gun 3 is sorted oh it was a, it was a 200 million pound f22 mm. and uh the sidewinder missile that took it took down the balloon was 400,000 dollars a shot 
Well done, Balloon. Yeah. Uh, finally, briefly, if you don't mind, California hasn't seen a catastrophic earthquake recently, says the LA Times. What timing to write an article now about the warnings that the quiet period is over? Yeah, I mean, it is specifically off the back of the Turkish uh, earthquake about this magnitude of quake, a, a 7.8. And it points out that California has, in sort of recorded uh, history there, had... Uh, two of these in in recent times, one in 1906, San Francisco quake, and then in 1857 in Southern California. Um, so there is a sort of feeling that whilst there was a big earthquake in the, in the 1980s, uh, late, late 1980s, um, that they're slightly overdue having a big one again uh, and how prepared uh, are people for that uh, because you know the, the Turkish one 7.8 with then a, a, an aftershock of 7.5 these are significant earthquakes if you think about California which is you know it's already having trouble with the environment it, it's having huge each year and increasing forest fires um, it's got struggles with water supply uh, and if it had a you know huge earthquake this is, you know, if California was a country, it would be in the top 10 world economies. Um, it sort of rivals the UK. It's a hugely populous state. Um, and if it did have something uh, like this, it would have a massive effect on the US economy. Vincent McAvinney, thank you so much for joining us as ever on The Globalist. You're with Monocle 24. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now let's talk business with Rachel Puppetoni joining us down the line from Brisbane. Hello, Rachel. Good to have you with us. Hi, Emma. So the headlines in Australia, what are they? Uh, well, we've heard today uh, that for the first time in two and a half years, Australian coal uh, could finally be arriving in China. Now, uh, when, of course, the pandemic first hit, uh, Australia was one of those countries that was calling for an investigation into, uh, I guess, the origins of uh, COVID-19. That did not make China very happy. Um, China is our biggest trading partner, and so they used their, their power and their weight there and started restricting uh, Australian uh, exports, uh, namely coal, uh, as well as wine, lobsters, barley, timber, $20 billion worth of exports exports. And uh, today, almost two and a half years later, we're finally seeing the first cargo ship of Coking Coal uh, uh, due to arrive in a Chinese port today. The magic eclipse left Queensland about a month ago, uh, carrying 72,000 tonnes of Coking Coal. So this is good news for um, that export market of ours. Uh, Australia has the lion's share of uh, 
exporting uh, coking coal. We, we take about 56% of that global market. And so to lose that big customer in, in China for so long has had a pretty detrimental impact for those producers. So they'll no doubt be watching closely to see what happens as that ship is unloaded. Indeed. I mean, what benefits will this now bring? Obviously, we have a, you know the, the thawing of trade relations, but you know, having lost so much money, what, what, will, what are we expecting to arrive in Australia's coffers as a result of this thawing? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So Fitch Solutions upgrading today its price forecast for coking coal from 300 US dollars a ton to 350. So just on the news that the first ship should arrive today. Uh, so that's a pretty big jump that you've seen there from one of those um, firms that closely monitors uh, these things. The the producers themselves haven't actually um, confirmed um, and said publicly that this is happening because there are those tensions there and those trade relations are so sensitive. So we haven't heard from the likes of Whitehaven Coal or Glencore, some of the big exporters that we have here, uh, but the market is definitely watching. Uh, and what will be interesting is to see how much of that is, um, I guess, returned. Um, prior to the ban, uh, Australia was sending about 10 million tonnes of coking coal a month to China and had to try to find other markets um, when China closed its doors essentially trying to expand into India and Japan uh, markets that already existed. So now there's those markets as well as hopefully this demand again from China, which we'll see um, uh, good numbers, I'm sure, for those producers. Um, let's move on uh, to Zoom. Uh, I think we all got rather uncomfortably close to Zoom in uh, from about March 2020 <laughs> onwards, um, but it's not doing as well as it used to. Yeah, obviously it grew in popularity. I mean, I hadn't heard of it really until until um, we all were forced to work from home and uh, dial into our meetings on uh, on our laptops. Uh, and of course, that saw its profitability soar, uh, its revenue growing fifty uh, sorry more than three times in 2020 and 55 percent in 2021. But that growth has really paired back as we've seen uh, life, I guess, return to more normal circumstances where we're less reliant on the likes of Zoom. So there are, uh, as they try to accommodate these uh, slowing demand in their services, are cutting their workforce by 15%. And the boss, Eric Yuan, as well as other senior execs, are taking a pay cut. Now, his pay cut is reportedly as much as 98%. I don't think I'd survive if my salary was cut by 98%, but clearly a uh, pretty highly paid executive. But the what we're seeing is this layoff of staff uh, across Zoom. And this is not uh, something that we're only seeing in Zoom. This is a tech sector-wide issue that we're seeing across the globe. A lot of tech industries, uh, companies really coming to terms with this post-COVID era and what that means for them. Rachel Puppetsoni, thank you so much for joining us. You're with The Globalist. Arguably no stranger to warnings about deforestation and the terrible environmental impact this has, but what perhaps we're not quite so aware of is the disappearance of wetlands. They're the planet's water tanks. Reports suggest that we're losing wetlands three times faster than we're losing forests. But nature does have a secret weapon to hand, 
the beaver. Acting as a builder and restorer, a beaver is hailed as the hero when it comes to protecting the environment. Well, Dominic Cousins is an award-winning nature writer and wildlife expert. Good morning, Dominic. Good to have you on Monocle 24. Thank you. Good morning. So just explain, what's going wrong with wetlands? What's going on with wetlands? Well, wetlands being destroyed all over the place because of basically human encroachment and also because of uh, climate change. So wetlands are drying out and uh, people are using the bits left to um, to build houses and various other human things. So the thing is that people have never historically recognised wetlands as being as amazing as they are and how sen- essential they are for so many things. And so they often would be the first thing to fall in a place because uh, humans didn't recognise how, how good they were and how good they are for health and all sorts of other things. Um, step in the beaver. What is Indeed. What are beavers doing? Well, what the beavers do is that they are the engineers, if you like, in wetland habitat. So if you have a stream <clears throat> with a woodland, what the beaver will do, if you wanted to build a pond, you just go and you build a pond and it would just be a pond. But what the beaver does, it dams the um, stream and it's not satisfied with that. It likes lots of different pools of water, so it will make channels, it will gnaw down trees. What it effectively does is enrich a habitat by its sort of beavering, if you like, activity. So what it actually does, and it does this free of charge, we should point out, it's a bit like a very sort of expensive gardener. If you have a gardener in your garden, you want it to be enriched and changed and looked after, then you probably you might need a lot of money. But with the beaver, it's free. So you get a very ordinary wetland turned into something extraordinary and very biodiverse. So you have this architect, structural engineer, builder, handyman, all in one. Um, and all for free. And yes. all for free and all looking rather sweet as well. Um, oh, yes. they, were, they were hunted almost to extinction though, weren't they? They were. In fact, the European beavers, two beavers, one in North America and one in uh, Eurasia, mainly in Europe. Um, yes, in Britain, it disappeared in the 16th century in Scotland. So... This is a very important point, actually. The, the beaver is native to the Northern Hemisphere. Sometimes we uh, try to alter habitats by introducing things from elsewhere. But no, the, nat- the beaver's always been here until it was exterminated for, for its uh, fur and so on. And so we should have no qualms about letting it back into habitats where it's always belonged. So tell us what next. I mean, what can we learn from the beaver? Well, I suppose the overall um, lesson from beavers is that actually nature is very good at looking after itself when it's actually given the chance. That really is the the thing to to take away. And also, it's not a great idea to exterminate native animals because there's always a consequence. Where can we find them? Where could we see one? Well, if you're talking about the UK, they're introduced in Scotland, particularly in Tayside. There's been a whole series of introductions um, in Dorset, in X, um, in Devon. There's some all over the place. And there's even just this last week, there's been permission to introduce them into London. What a thought. Dominic Cousins, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Well, that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Laura Kramer. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parminchon. And our studio manager was Nora Hall. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. We'll be joining Fernanda Augusto Pacheco for The Stack in a little while. Plus, Robert Bound will be bringing us Monocle on Culture. And Marcus Hippie is behind the microphone for today's episode of The Briefing. That's at midday here in London. 
Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.